You're listening to the Nonprofit Problem Solver Podcast brought to you by KevKayat.com. Kev helps nonprofit leaders deliver more impact faster and easier so they can be mission accomplished in 40 hours a week or less. For more information, visit KevKayat.com. Now, here is the host of Nonprofit Problem Solver, Kev Kayat. Kev Kayat here. Welcome to Nonprofit Problem Solver. Thanks for tuning in. We're here to help. You are actually the Nonprofit Problem Solver. Our job is to bring you practical, tactical expertise that you can use right now, or maybe in an hour. You're about to hear the recording of a live call with an expert panel, and you're more than welcome to join these live calls. Just zip on over to nonprofitproblemsolver.com to register. In episode nine on talent and staff development, we look at this theme through the lens of the current protests in dozens of cities across the US and elsewhere in the wake of the brutal murder by police of George Floyd and far too many others. We ask how best to support black colleagues, how to respond to the murders and their aftermath, both as organizations and as individuals, and we consider the implications of COVID's racial disparities on plans to return to work. This is an hour of yet more talk but I hope it inspires you to take action and to adopt or strengthen an anti-racist perspective. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to episode nine of Nonprofit Problem Solver. This is our third cycle through our four themes. And uh, we are blessed with a, another esteemed panel. Uh, some of you might getting to know them already. Uh, I'll have them introduce themselves. I'll start with Brian Broadbent. Uh, Brian Broadbent uh, in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, CEO of Business Volunteers Unlimited. Thanks, Brian. Arquella? Arquella Hargrove with Epic Collaborative Advisors based in Houston, Texas. Great. Uh, Jody Weiss? Sure. Um, hi, Jody Weiss. I lead the nonprofit education practice at Corn Ferry, and um, I'm sitting in Washington, D.C. Okay, and uh, Dana Litwin. Hi, I'm Dana Litwin. I'm a CVA. I'm in San Francisco, and I do volunteer program design and engagement at uh, as a principal consultant, DanaLitwinConsulting.com. Right, and finally, Derek Fulton. Derek Fulton, Regional Vice President with Cityer, and um, I'm based in Cleveland, but our national office is in Boston. Okay, so the way this works is that we'll go through a series of questions with the panel. Um, we have the chat open and active if you want to uh, address the panel or uh, contribute on the way, and then if we have time at the end, we'll, we'll bring in some questions uh, from, from the group. Uh, so I want to start uh, firstly by acknowledging that we are um, have been in trying times throughout uh, 2020 with COVID and and, uh, and other challenges to nonprofits, and uh, here we are again with uh, it seems that at every every juncture the the ante gets increased, and now we are facing uh, um, civil unrest in uh, response to. Uh, police murders in Minneapolis, Louisville, and elsewhere. So I want to start, uh, uh, Derek and Arquella, first by uh, asking uh, how you would advise executive directors who 
already in the midst of trying to support their staff shifting to remote working and identifying essential workers and looking at furlough policies and so on and so forth, uh, how they can best support their black staff and, and how their staff can look to support their uh, black service users. Derek, do you want to comment on that first? Uh, <laughs> that's a loaded question. Um, so, Kev, I'm just going to be transparent before we get into this, these questions. You asked me about yesterday. You were checking in to make sure I was going to join this call. I'll be honest with you. I'm still struggling being here right now. So, um, how we show, so first of all, and my response was I'm struggling with business as usual. Mm -hmm. We should not expect people to be business as usual right now, especially our black brothers and sisters in our organizations and across the country. Um, that's one, uh, recognizing that, honoring that, and being cognizant of that. I know that work needs to continue and move on, um, especially in the nonprofit space, even here at City Year, it's the end of the fiscal year, trying to close gifts, all everything you name as far as a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. um, it's just challenging to, to show up, you know, me as a leader, it's, it's challenging to show up myself. So I'm going to be my authentic self. So that's one thing. So you think about the community that we serve, um, that's a, <laughs> that's a whole nother topic because, I, I, you know, there's very few spaces where I'm represented in the community we serve in and where we lead. Um, so we need to make sure those voices are elevated. We need to make sure that we're honoring our constituents as well. We need to think about this time is, are we going to put things in action? We talk about voting. Voting is critical, but accountability is critical as well. And we do not hold our elected officials accountable. We do not. Um, so I, I'm just, I'm tired. And my, my black colleagues are tired. Um, and, uh, you know, I have a voice, but the voice that needs to be elevated is my white brothers and sisters. I need you all to speak up. I need you all to take action because we did not create this situation and we're not going to be able to fix the situation. Okay. Thank you for that. Arquella, are you, are you still with us? Yes. So, yeah. So thank you for the, um, the question. I um, have been working with groups on um, just how to deal with this, especially around implicit bias um, just because I have some sessions that are coming up and it is it's it's frustrating just to uh, what's happening and one thing that I would really and as I advise clients to do is really to be clear on where you stand on what's happening uh, in regards to um, the protests in regards to um, the the murders and in regards to even just the leadership of this country is being clear on where you stand and giving up employees an opportunity to step away to uh, participate um, in the protest and a march here in Houston that happened yesterday and had clients who allowed employees to step away and go and participate, um, as well as um, um, being open to hearing what they need and asking those questions. 
um, and creating those opportunities for people to reflect and to um, share their experiences and their feelings and not being afraid to really be uncomfortable in an in uncomfortable situation. Um, and also just asking people, what is it that they, that they need, right? How can I be of assistance? I think is, is really the best way to support so I think a common theme there around uh, authenticity, uh, dealing with where we are in the moment. Dana, can you can you comment? Before about- we move, just real quick, I want to follow up something our yes, said because we're dealing with this here city here. Um, dealing is the wrong word. I've experienced this as a, as a black man leader in this organization. There's a lot of trauma related to that. So when you ask the question, "What do you need?" What are, the responses that I'm hearing often and frequently is I'm actually tired of talking about this. I want action. I want to see, I'm, I'm tired of the conversations. I'm being re-traumatized by having these conversations. So I will be careful. That's delicate. Even as a black man, I mean, I'm getting that feedback from my black colleagues. Did you want to come in there, Aquila? Yeah, no, I definitely just, we have to be able to, if we're asking the question, we, we want to make sure that the leaders are taking action and to say what they're going to do um, is, is, is critical versus kind of repeating, right? Having the same conversation over and over again is not helping <laughs> at all. Um, so definitely to, to take some action. Right. Okay. Uh, and Derek, thank you for, for that. I appreciate uh, that sensitivity. And the, the last thing we're trying to do is re-traumatize or, 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 or make, you know, add fuel to the fire. I think in terms of trying to understand things, what I wanted to go to, to Dana first and then, and then Jody onwards is, is what, does, um, what does allyship look like from your perspective at the moment in terms of no longer talking, but, but actually moving towards action. And as, as Derek said, our, uh, our, our white colleagues actually doing something for a change. Yeah, thank you. And thank you so much, Arquella and, and Derek. I'm, I'm been on multiple sides of this because uh, I'm a lesbian identified queer woman. And so I've, I've been a, an accomplice and a co-conspirator in direct action in my community um, intersectionally. And now I'm absolutely stepping into action. And the conversations that I've had have actually um, downplayed ally because it's it's very often seen as trying to get cookies or points or gold stars and lip service. And so um, the actions that I'm taking, the actions that I'm advising uh, clients and just colleagues and, and pro bono are if you're making uh, kind of the quintessential white text on black statement, uh, that it's not empty, that it outlines internal action items that your agency is doing rather than seeming to, to jump on a bandwagon to ride a wave of other people's work in this sector. And what I'm specifically uh, dealing with and, and seeing in volunteer engagement is, you know, to yes and everything that Derek and um, Arquella mentioned is allow people the time and the space and the grace for any time off they need, volunteer, you know, paid, paid or unpaid team members for anything that they're dealing with. And also to understand that lives, uh, whether or not someone's directly participating in any um, civil rights or protest action right now, 
lives in so many big cities, I'm in San Francisco, we're in, we're in a tight curfew, uh, are, are also impacted and work is, is even more difficult to accomplish. There's, we're so far away from normal or even a new normal that I just think um, patience, grace, as much empathy as is possible is, is occurring. And again, not just saying a statement, not just um, saying we will at some point do these nebulous one, two, three, four things, but this is what we're doing right now. And amplifying um, BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, uh, Person of Color voices. And I personally, although I, am, I appreciate being on this panel today, I'm actually trying to, uh, I'm telling people if what you're doing by action items and statement is genuinely helpful information or pointing to genuinely helpful resources, great. Otherwise, if your agency mission is not normally aligned with social justice or anti-racist activities, it can look, um, it can be really problematic and it is really problematic for this kind of um, virtue signaling allyship to, to seem to be jumping into something that isn't your normal mission statement. Yes, and if you have a really short, this is what we're doing, we acknowledge this, we see and feel the trauma, I think that's important. What I'm personally doing is not, uh, is, is try taking on as much emotional labor or education of um, other white people, uh, gay, straight, or otherwise, so that um, my colleagues who are people of color and are really directly been doing this work can have that rest, can take that breath. So that's me personally and my, my personal volunteerism and activism have been doing that uh, much more in the last couple of weeks. But it's so important that if your agency, you have to take a stand on this, you have to tell people very clearly where you stand, yes and for your action items, your agency may very well already be on the wrong side of history. Your board and your leadership may not be ready to be aligned with this and may have already done some really poor internal <laughs> policies around um, inherent biases and racism and things like that. And so it's it's going to take, as Arquel said, really uncomfortable, honest, internal assessment of your agency and your staff and your board and what messages have you been sending, what um, you know harm, unconscious or unconscious, has already been occurring in the work that you've been doing. And if you don't address those things in one of those statements, if you're gonna participate in the statement, that's that's gonna land with a harmful impact instead of a helpful impact, no matter what your intentions are. So you, again, I think there's that theme of authenticity of the personal work that people need to do and you're getting uh, onto the organizational perspective, which I want to come onto in, in just a moment. But you mentioned uh, another civil rights struggle around uh, gay, lesbian, and, and, and sexual equality, which I think is interesting in that it sort of, it's leapfrog the racial question in the sense that the racial question has been with us seemingly forever, but generationally, there's been a big difference in the last 20, 30 years in the way that people have interpreted and accepted sexual differences and gender differences. And I wonder if there's a model there for people to do that internal work around making those adjustments and, and doing that, uh, that, that allyship uh, that, could be tr that could, we could learn from. Because there seem to be 
that an accelerated change compared to the way uh, we've been dealing with race in this country. Yes, and the, the two biggest pieces of advice that I give to uh, my white or non-POC colleagues is, you know how to Google, you know how to do the work, you know how to do the research. Let's not put any more time, energy drain, emotional, emotional labor distress on our colleagues that are reliving a collective trauma. And I have to give... I have to give our foremothers, uh, Marsha Johnson, who was a black uh, transgendered woman, and Sylvia Rivera, who was uh, Hispanic, identified as drag queen, but is often um, considered uh, in the trans community. Those were the people that really kicked off Stonewall. So gay rights started with, you know, very intense pushback against police brutality. A staff and talent panel isn't usually where I do this kind of talk, but this is the, these are the times that we're are and we are in, and this is the authenticity. So you know, there's plenty of resources out there um, without having to re-engage a conversation with someone who's already exhausted or just trying to do their day-to-day -day work in, in these extraordinary circumstances. And um, if people want to literally email me directly, Dana, DanaLitwin.com. I'm, I'm happy to send all kinds of resources uh, wherever somebody is on their journey organizationally or personally of um, uh, educational uh, items and articles and, and books and, and quick tips and deep dives of how to do this work um, and take some of that, that labor off of our um, BIPOC, BIPOC, BIPOC colleagues right now. Yeah, I will. I will take you up on uh, on those resources, Jody. Uh, you've been uh, vigorously nodding your head as uh, everyone else has been speaking. I'll just let you jump in wherever you think the right entry point is. Sure, sure. So, um, you know, really great comments, and uh, you know, well heard from everyone. You know, it's uh, there, there's just so much. I'm someone who grew up in New York City, and now I'm in D.C. So I, I, you know, as a young child, like I think in in high school. We had, I think, some of the first racial riots, um, you know, violence on television. So I feel, you know, when you grow up in a city that's so diverse, I think you, your lens, your social justice lens is a little bit different than someone who's growing up in a different environment. Um, you know, being in downtown D.C. right now, it's so unsettling because my life is sirens, helicopters, ran downtown this morning, everything's boarded up, vandalism all over the National Mall. I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, you can't, you can't not cry. I mean, it's very, it's just, it, it's sad to see what is going on, the divides. Um, you know, what I'd say about allyship, um, this is all of our problem. I don't see this as a black, white problem. This is everyone's problem. Um, and it always has been, right? So I think that's just so important to acknowledge. And you know, everyone in different ways knows what it feels like to feel inadequate and feel like you're being looked at the wrong way or judged the wrong way. So no matter what your color is, I think that everybody can, in in some sense, relate to it. But um, you know, we had a really interesting experience at Corn Ferry on Monday that was, I think, the most unexpected experience in a in a public corporate global setting, we had a town hall call and we had some of our diversity leaders, we have some of the best people, you know, across the nation who do the diversity training, whether it's unconscious bias and, you know, getting a, a lot more involved with boards. And um, I think the first thing that happened was a safe space was created. And in that safe space, everyone was sharing pretty intensive, painful, 
personal stories about children, about how they're living their lives, about how that impacted them. Um, and everyone was sharing what we can do. And, you know, the biggest takeaway was the pain um, and and how how important this is, like how this can't go on another day or a week. Like it has to be happening right now with the protests, hopefully a little bit less violence in the days to come. But, you know, everyone wanted to act. And so I think this is, you know, it's about action. And, and you know, the takeaway was everyone was saying, well, what can I do? How can I be part of the solution? You know, and it was like a, a such a moving situation. And, you know, Derek was saying, it's hard to go back to business as normal. That lasted an hour and a half and it was very intensive. And then my first business call after that, I broke out into tears. And, um, you know, like if you're in the corporate world, that happens very rarely, but it's really hard to go, you know, to just kind of treat business as normal because it's not. And, you know, so I think that's like the first step. It's creating the safe space, letting people talk if they want to talk, letting people be quiet if they want to be quiet, letting people go protest. Um, Corn Ferry took the stance that go protest, you know, go do what you need to do. Like they're very supportive. Um, you know, wh whatever works for you right now is how you have to, to go. Like they're not telling you how to be, um, they're, they're giving you, they're offering us, um, <laughs> you know, different everyone's sharing books podcast you know anything that you can start your education and start informing yourself in different ways so you know i think allyship right now is going to happen in so many different ways and shapes but i think it's about listening i think it's about showing up i think it's about taking action i think it's about like if you want to cry or be quiet or work or not work really doing what's appropriate for you and um you know because we all have to heal because no change happens until people do heal so lots more I can say, but I'll, I know I know we have other topics to discuss. So, so thank you for that. You, w one of the things I, I pulled out of there is that uh, is Corn Ferry uh, making the decision that if people wanted to go and and protest and participate in in uh, that those activities, that that was okay. Mm -hmm. And and I think one of the questions I've seen on social media uh, this week is nonprofits wondering. How do they respond in a in a corporate way? Do they should they be saying something? Who say who 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 does that? Does the does the board chair? Do, how do they conduct that? And 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 in most cases, uh, most of the nonprofits wanted to demonstrate clear support uh, and and condemnation of what happened to George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and so on, but clear, unclear how to do that. Uh, Brian, do you want to comment on? how BVU might recommend or advise uh, nonprofits it, it, that, it, that come to you with that sort of question about how they take a stance and what they should and shouldn't do? You know, it's interesting, Kev, and, and some of the group have already addressed this to an extent. We've wrestled with the very same thing. Um, when this all happened, Monday morning, I sent out a note to the staff, which is just for me personally and how the circumstances had hit me and, um, but it was a very personal note uh, that went out. And, um, and what we've decided to do, we were actually uh, contacted by the Cleveland Leadership Center. And we have these leadership programs. And the woman who leads that group is uh, engaging with seven different nonprofits of similar sizes that actually have programs that help people respond. Because we've seen a lot of messages go out and say, well, we, you know, we uh, don't condone this. We're against it. You know, the outrage and violence. 
But a lot of people are looking for what's next, what's the action that you would take. And so what we're doing is uh, with this pronouncement is also having people sign a pledge. And the pledge has about seven points of what it, what it means, what you're pledging to. And it recognizes the seven nonprofits that are signing this uh, pronouncement as places people can go in order to be able to respond. And um, so that's one thing we're doing. So we're pretty much working with Leadership Cleveland to do that. Secondly, what I'm personally going to do is put out a blog just about my own involvement. I won't go on to that with everybody on the phone, but a lot of the boards I'm on happen to be focused on inner city issues. Um, I'm on the uh, uh, Commission for Economic Inclusion in Cleveland, a number of different things. But it's not to be preachy, but it's to help people think about well, where are you spending your time? You know, are, there are other avenues and things that you can do to really make a difference in this because so many people want to make a difference. And I'm talking to a lot of friends and they just don't know how. Well, our organization is uh, one of the organizations that helps people think about how they can do something different because we serve 800 nonprofits. It's kind of something for everybody. So I'm going to sign the common pronouncement with the pledge and send out a personal note for myself. Now, every nonprofit is in a different part, uh, a different place. And I really like the uh, feedback that you started with some people. I think Derek, maybe you mentioned right out of the gate, but it's like, what are you going to do different? And try to put people in that direction, not just words. Is there, is there anything, and uh, I'll, I'll ask you, Brian, if you got any ideas on this, but I want, uh, would like Arquella to respond in, in terms of her, uh, her advice to, to boards and executive directors. Is there anything that uh, nonprofits should not be doing as part of their response? Brian, any any, any Oh, I thought that was for Aquila. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. I was just wondering, because just to tail on it on the back there, I'm just piggybacking on your answer, and then, uh, and I was going to pose the same question to our to our Quella. But I don't know if you had any any thoughts there on, on things that they they shouldn't do. Again, it's a it's a question that uh, no. directors and board members are saying, like, well, you know, is there anything we should, you know, we don't want to make mistakes in this regard. Well, I'll, I'll just add one thing, and I think Eric, maybe somebody's mentioned it. Don't overstate what you do. What's your mission? And don't try to be something that you're not. Um, you have a mission. You have programs that are aligned with it. Now, the question we're asking at BVU is, what are we going to do different? So it's not only are we doing personally differently, but what is BVU going to be doing different? So we have a program called a Minority Board Pipeline Initiative. So what is this? We work with all these businesses and train and match people to boards of directors of nonprofits. We've been doing it for 27 years. Very good program. But the one problem we've had is, the number one request we have from nonprofits is they want people of color on their boards, far and away the number one request. When businesses are left to their own devices, only about 7% of the people who are going through our program are people of color. And so we went out to our businesses and said, look, we really need more minorities that are involved um, in this program. Can you help us out, nominate more people? And the needle didn't move at all. It stayed at that seven, 8% level. But what we did is we engaged a number of African-American leaders, six of them to be precise, who helped us um, take the program to a different level. And the next year after their involvement, we had 19% of the people that went through board matching were people of color. And it was because of engaging these leaders. So like the one step BVU is going to take right now, which is very practical, 
we're no longer at 7%, but we're like 12, 13%. We're going to re-engrade, engage another group of African-American leaders because having those vo voices on nonprofit boards is critical um, and um, kind of re-energize that program. So that's just one example of a practical thing we're going to do, but it's in line with our mission, kind of getting back to what your original question was, not doesn't stray from what we're, what we do. All right. Thank you. Uh, Arquella, anything that um, nonprofits should not be doing? Yeah, I would agree with going back to Brian again, just making sure that the decisions are aligned with the organization's um, core values and, and being really intentional on how they want to move forward. Because at this point, it's how do we pivot based on what is happening? And what I'm seen and, and working with organizations on is, yeah, what is the plan? You don't want to not allow employees not to voice their experiences or their feelings or uh, not want to deny someone to participate, right, in a cause where as we want to make sure that we are being open to that and we are taking a stand, as I said earlier, taking a stand, being an example um, being able to lead and yes, it may feel uncomfortable, but this is the way that we're, we're able to heal and able to grow is when we're able to, to lean into um, some of that uncomfortableness. And should, should, should uh, boards of directors allow their, uh, their staff to participate uh, as private individuals or, as, or still sort of representing the organization? I think it's going to be an individual choice. I mean, like I you know, have groups where they will allow their employees the, the time off to go and participate, but they are there as an employee. And, and a lot of times that's stated clearly when we get to policies and procedures, uh, but they are there, you know, representing themselves, not the organization, unless the organization is saying, hey, we're going as a group, we're going to go and um, as the team, and that happens. And yeah, they're there on behalf of the organization. But if it's just individual employees who are going out um, and this is what they want to do on their own time, then they're representing themselves. All right. And do you have a clear policy on this, Derek, on how folks in city year employees in, because you are in, in cities and, uh, and I would say the 28, 29 cities you're in, there's a, a, a good proportion are uh, uh, hosting some sort of opportunity for people to express their views whether that's during the day or, or you know, in, or under a you know under a curfew situation, uh, so does City Year have an explicit policy about how their um, uh, City Year members are able to participate? Well, because we receive AmeriCorps funding, the federal dollars, we cannot uh, protest uh, as a we cannot actively protest in City Year you know, gear, like we have uniform, we actually have, you know, city year, um, you know, the jackets, uh, mm -hmm. I have a city year t-shirt on right now, my Detroit, Detroit hustles harder. That's my mood. We hustle harder. Um, so we encourage individuals to uh, participate. And we actually, I put in the chat in, in an effort to um, be supportive. Monday was a day where we offered people, particularly Black people. It was actually directed to our black um, team teammates to take a day to do what you need, whether it be uh, just self care, whether it be to participate uh, peacefully in your community, whatever you need at that time for. That's what we offered Monday, and it was you know uh, 
they've also offered broadly. Um, but then also um, we're looking at providing additional days, which we're uh, thinking about what to um, coin them or, or label them as. Um, there's been talk of justice days, but an opportunity so that people would be able to take time um, during the, the, the work day, if you will, so they don't have to do it in the evening or on the weekend mm -hmm. if, if, if they don't want to. So we are um, looking at that as well. Okay. Uh, another another question for you uh, with regard to return to work. Uh, now we've 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 noted on this uh, uh, program before in in a number of different themes the fact that COVID has revealed some uh, a number of divisions uh, in in our society, both economically, socially, uh, and of course across racial lines with. Uh, uh, African Americans, maybe three times or so, more um, susceptible to uh, COVID or experiencing those um, symptoms more frequently. How does that affect Derek? Your planning to return to work, um, if at all, if that's a factor that you've been uh, you're, you're taking into consideration, uh, and and does you know a similar question is does the um, racial disproportionality in that regard affect the way you think about uh, the skills your staff are going to need as we, as we return to whatever our next normal is? So that's a, that's a complex question. So yes, we've had those discussions. Um, we haven't specifically leaned into, so there's two different, I feel like you asked two different things. So from an yeah, organizational standpoint, we haven't, um, it goes back to what Jody said about we're looking at everyone's best interest when it comes to COVID for sure. So we haven't really disaggregated that internally. Um, and I don't know the data actually, because we want to honor individuals, um, uh, HIPAA rights when you're sharing information. I'm not exactly sure how many people have been affected by COVID in our organization. Mm -hmm. So we haven't really uh, spent, significant time disaggregating it that way. When you think about the communities we serve, though, we have discussed that. How do we, um, as a team, work to um, partner with other organizations? Because our core members are not uh, as adept. Some, some are, but not as, as adept as it relates to some of the more um, adverse challenges that um, the children, children and families we suffer. And I see Allison Black is um, here she knows she's worked with city here and um, she serves in our community. So it's important to have partners like Allison in the community who can help us navigate resources that we have um, to connect our families with. So those are the conversations. What do we need to do um, in that piece? And the last thing I'll say is it's been a real challenge for our core members because we're, we're wrapping up service for the year as we prepare for another service year. So you think about what are our schools going to be doing? How do we support them? All of these things. It's been a big challenge. Um, for our core members and our staff that we have not been able to provide service in the traditional way, to be boots on the ground, if you will, to be in person, to be connected. I mean, we've done what we can do um, in an intentional way in supporting our school districts uh, with that. But I've heard core members say, you know, I don't know what my families are, you know, I, my, my kids are telling me that their aunt is sick or, I mean, so they're processing all this information. Right. So the mental health piece has been big and we spent a lot of time unpacking how do we support um, our core staff um, through, through that, um, through the pandemic and, and managing 
I don't like calling it the new normal, but managing through this. I'm not a fan of that. Um, I hope it doesn't stay normal. This isn't the normal I want. So I don't, you don't hear me saying the new normal. Um, so though, that's a long answer, but that's how we're approaching it. No, I, 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 I'm grateful for that. Dana, what are you seeing with people trying to imagine a return to work? Uh, and how is the, um, I, just, I just want to pull out that, uh, that racial disparity as well in uh, COVID incidents and just to see how uh, people are processing that and thinking about that in terms of how they plan their return to, to work and, and reopening. Well, I'm in, I'm in Tech Central. I'm in Silicon Valley. So I'm hearing from a lot of friends what the phase back to work looks like in, in the tech industry and in, um, you know, industries where people have had the luxury and the privilege to work from home and have an income this, this entire time. So I'm, I'm hearing a lot of that with my nonprofit clients, uh, uh, pro bono or, or paid, what's, the reality of what's happening is this is a gigantic disruption. This is a gigantic disruption of services. This is a gigantic disruption of life. And um, it's really taking very flexible and adaptable crisis response. So anyone that's been caught with uh, not having a good internal crisis response policy and, and being able to pivot and being flexible and adaptable is having a harder time in that return to work. What I'm seeing specifically in the volunteer sector is that uh, the vast majority of uh, mutual aid and action that's occurring uh, at protests or in support or offering water is coming from, is, is volunteer. So, so this is a way of categorizing volunteer effort. It may be, may or may not, um, as others have said, be associated with what your company is officially doing and sending a team. But uh, everything that is occurring uh, on the the protest uh, support side of water, milk against tear gas, things like that, all of that's volunteering. So what we're seeing is in, we saw this in COVID response as well, is this huge surge of informal volunteering of, of just people taking action where it needs to be taken and that actually makes it more difficult if people are taking actions away from official programs how do nonprofits and government agencies um, get that talent pool re-engaged or or on board when people feel like there's a there's now a different priority triaging in their life to go you know put their time and their energy in a different direction so i think that has to be accounted for and again there has to be grace and understanding that our our talent pool and our and how we return to work is has to be really flexible and has to look really different uh and in response to uh, robert has a question in the chat every area has a different level of what that safely looks like in response to covid you know in san francisco we are um we're under curfew we're also under mandatory masks outside which not everybody is and so what we're seeing um, in any volunteer action, both before uh, the protests fired up in the last few days, is people are out there doing what they have to do and they're wearing masks and they're typically trying to um, stay further away from each other. But a lot of times the action of the crowd uh, doesn't make that possible. So understanding that um, we could very well see 
uh, resurgence of cases just just because of, of proximity with or without masks in a couple of weeks and doing our best to plan for what that looks like in a work cycle or return to work cycle if we have a big spike in any particular um, locality of of illness uh, around COVID uh, in addition to all these other disruptions that are happening. So I can say that, you know, tech companies in the area have like, well, by June 15th, we're going to try this level, this tier of person who's absolutely necessary to be in the office. And by July 1st, we're going to try this tier. But they're also having this little asterisk of like, unless dot, 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 dot. Right. So I want to, Jody, we, you, you mentioned last time, uh, we we were touching on this subject about the skills uh, in demand for uh, the executive roles that that mm-hmm. you are filling in nonprofits and, and higher ed, and you were talking about crisis management and and having that level of of, of ambiguity. Uh, I, so I assume that's still the case, but I just mm-hmm. wanted to pull in that intersection with. Uh, again, the racial disparity of COVID affecting both staff and communities and what what that demands then for, for some of the executives that you are looking to recruit is you know, that what's, how does that skill set look like and how does that affect the uh, planning scenarios that organizations are looking at? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and that's great. I'm going to answer that. I just wanted to go back for a second about, you know, what the return to work is, because we're, we're living it because so many organizations are in DC and New York City. So we're hiring new executives, and then everybody's onboarding virtually. But it's not just, you know, everyone's talking about the COVID testing. Um, but it's also, it's a lot more than that. It's also um, giving people time off, making sure that if they do get sick in a month from now, because, you know, people are still going to be getting sick for the next few months, that there's, uh, you know, plans in place that people can work remotely as long as they need to, if they have children at home, you know, um, we're still unsure if K-12 is going back, universities, all my university clients are, they're going to decide by July 1st. I mean, there's so much up in the air right now that, um, you know, making sure people have that flexibility that it wasn't just during the peak time, but making sure that they have the flexibility to be safe, to heal, to take care of their families, to work remotely, and that they have some sort of guarantee medical coverage and so forth. So it's so involved for people to return to work. And um, where we just started phase one, DC is under intense curfew. So we've also seen a lot of organizations that return back. Now we're back home because of, of um, the protests. So I think that, you know, and, and that kind of spins into what organizations are looking for. I just got off a, a client call with a, um, with a, a global uh, K-12 uh, organization prior to this. And that agility, that ability to be flexible is key because all of these roles that used to be 70% travel, um, you know, whether you work for an association, we don't even know what that looks like. When is traveling starting again? So I think first and foremost, organizations are looking for people who are, you know, adaptable is just part of, of, of every essence of, of who they are, that if they have to get on a plane in a month, they can. If they don't get on a plane for another year, they can figure out how to be effective virtually. So, you know, it's, it's that, that innovation is so key because we don't know, you know, it's, it's a rare time in history. We have no idea what's next. Um, you know, we have, so, we have unemployment, we have, you know, we have racial divide, we just have, we have a pandemic. 
Um, and, and it's like somebody who can look at the situation and, you know, that emotional intelligence, it's such an overused term, but it's so critical right now. It's somebody who's really listening and hearing and, you know, has the agility. Um, and if they have to work remotely and lead an organization, they can do that too. So, you know, it's, it's, um, good luck to the, the future leaders, you know, they're out there and we're placing them, but they, they, they almost need to be like superhuman um, because, you know, it, it's such unprecedented times. And then you add the diversity element into it. Um, gosh, for the last two or three years, I have not sat with a board who has not told me they want a very diverse slate of candidates. And what they're saying is they want, you know, racially, ethnic diversity, you know, that's really what they're saying. And, um, you know, and it's, it's critical, you know, so it's, it's complicated because it's not just finding a candidate who looks right. It's finding a candidate who is right and who, you know, can really um, take the mission forward and represents the values of a mission. And so, you know, we're reassessing, we're just interviewing people in whole different ways. And because we're doing everything video right now, we're, we're asking the hard questions, the first interview. And so I will say that, you know, candidates out there, um, we're probably, you know, we're going at it with a lot more intensity. Um, they're, they're not such casual conversations. They're diving right into the hard stuff and um, giving scenarios of what would you do if you were running this organization today? What would, you know, how would you address your, your staff? And so, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's going to be a new generation of really um, authentic and powerful leaders. It's interesting, the scale of the flexibility that you're referring to, because we often think of uh, strategic flexibility or the high level in the, in the C-suite of, of an organization, but listening to what Derek and Dana have contributed about listening to specific staff, supporting their specific circumstances, it's really important that, that, the, that leaders are listening and ask, asking the right questions, giving staff that opportunity. That flexibility doesn't mm -hmm. just mean how that leader is responding to the situation, but uh, providing that flexibility for everyone in the organization to provide that, that uh, level of flexibility and response. Yeah, um, so I just wanna say that th there's a parallel um, there's a parallel problem or there's a parallel issue with how how an organization often thinks about its volunteer talent pool and how they think about if they haven't done deep um, diversity, equity, uh, inclusion work, how they think about we need diversity in our border staff. And that's thinking that there's a magical refrigerator or cupboard somewhere that you just open up and you reach in and you grab the flavor or the skill set that is always there and always ready and, and pre-trained and you just pull that person out and you plop them in. And that's a super common disconnect uh, culturally around volunteers of like, oh, I need, you know, 10 people who have these skill sets tomorrow morning for an event. But what we are seeing anytime that um, racial injustice, social injustice comes to everybody's attention again as an agency and, and disrupts work is suddenly they're again talk about is this authentic is this aligned and if we keep trying if boards um, in HR keep reaching into the same cupboards and thinking they're going to get a different result that doesn't work there's the talent exists um, but you have to know how to go and look for it in new places and in new ways and how to develop 
um, those talent pipe pipelines for um, BIPOC leaders and, and executives. And sometimes that means looking to your volunteer talent pool of who's already leading, who's boots on the ground in your agency that can be um, lifted up uh, and amplified into a leadership position, who's boots on the ground in the community, where's a non-traditional way that you can uh, look to um, diversify your talent pool because I, I and I, um, so many on the panel probably see this, I just, I watch organizations try to do the same thing over and over and over again to increase diversity and then they're very confused when it doesn't work and I tell them to do something different and they're like, ooh, that's uncomfortable, ugh, we don't know how, like, no, here are the steps and then like, ugh. So we need to get, again, Pat was our quality Derek saying, well past that discomfort um, and uncenter uh, that bias and, and quite frankly, un uncenter white discomfort around doing things uh, a new way. Yeah, that's. I think it's a it's a really important uh, piece and and points to what Derek said right at the very beginning. Uh, that uh, well, well, we've we've agreed this is a problem for everyone. It's really uh, white supremacy is a white problem for white people to fix. Um, Derek, I, I, I'll just I'll try to be succinct. Um, the, we. I would suggest just being prepared when you're having these conversations. Um, just being honest, I'm one of the few black male leaders in this national organization. Um, so a lot of people come to me for the quote unquote answers. What do we do? What, you know, how do we respond? How do we, so just be prepared. What I've been hearing, not only just from, you know, our, our, our managers who are working with our, our teams who serve in the schools. I mean, we have executive directors in the organization saying, I, we have people not showing up for spaces to process because they don't, I don't want to talk about just, I need you all to conceptualize. This is really building. I don't want to keep talking about this. The action needs to be front and center. You keep convening me for these conversations. And it's not just the people who you think. It's senior level people saying, I don't want to talk about this anymore either. But but I think the other point, I think, though, Derek, is is that talking about it isn't action. That So that's what I'm saying is it's you actually it supports the white supremacist uh, structure that you that you mentioned. Um, it's not as simplistic as, you know, we're going to fix it today. It's um, we're not we as b black people are not in a position of power. Um, and we've talked about COVID. When you think about the population, the, 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 like a Detroit, I'm wearing Detroit. It was purposeful today. Detroit is being hit hard in many ways. And you think about the population there and what's happening to them. Uh, it's just startling. Um, so you just, the systems, uh, the institutions that we need to address, that's what I mean. I don't want to just simplify it, but it's just so broad that I don't, I don't think we can lose sight of that. And I think if you have really intentional conversations and maybe it would help to have them facilitated, um, then you can really get at the root um, and, and action can be, some action steps can be designed. Um, and people are looking at action steps like the now, like, not five years from now, right now. And, and having the facilitated conversation doesn't count as an action step. 
you know, for so many people, that's that's the that's the end. And and Arquel, I want one of you comment on getting. I think you were sort of hinting at this, Derek, is this balance between centering the black experience and the black voices who can share it, but not exhausting them, or or relying so heavily on that alone to either solve the problem or to um, take that an, an initial next step. How do you how do you strike that balance? Yeah, for me, and I, I, I love this quote by um, Ben Franklin when he says that justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as as, as outraged as those who are. Um, so definitely it's having the um, conversations, but it's, you know, we can go back to allyship, right? It's it's being an advocate. It's, it's being uh, a confidant. It's um, listening. It's asking questions when... Um, someone's describing their experience um, that maybe you haven't had before, um, as well as just to be creating that space for people to have the conversation. But then we have to take action and then believing others' experiences and, um, and not assuming that it couldn't have happened because you haven't personally experienced it. Um, so I, I definitely highly agree with the facilitated discussion. But again, what's our action steps? And who's going to do what? Who's going to be responsible? Who's taking the lead? Um, and then from there, taking a step further is putting some timelines to it is what I find that really holding people accountable uh, where they are ready to, to move forward. But we first have to create that space and have the, those discussions. Yeah. Uh, thank you for that. Brian, do you um, have um, uh, any uh, examples of where uh, boards that you've been involved with or worked in have, have, have made some positive steps in this regard? Yeah. Um, well, you know, there, there's a couple things about boards. The one thing is when you have diversity on board, there's a study that says you also have to, have to have critical mass of people of a diverse group to have a common voice and to be able to move the agenda forward. And, um, sorry, just another way of saying that is that, um, you know, is to, is to address that risk of tokenism. Right. You, you have to have the critical mass of, of, of voice. Yeah. You know, another thing that I, I think about is um, when people choose different bo boards, you know, we always ask that someone chooses a board based on their personal preferences, their skills, their time availability, and get those things lined up that make sense for a board. But it, it's interesting. So I'm on one board that is a, um, it's a crisis uh, area for people with, um, we build job skills, it's for homeless people who have recently come out of prison. And it's interesting, seeing in the boardroom, you can almost keep yourself removed from our clientele, if you wish. And you just go to meetings and, and you have comments on the strategic direction, that type of thing. But it's a very different thing when you actually get to know the clientele in some of these situations. So one of the things I personally advise people to do is also take a step closer um, and do that. So like at this at this area, um, I serve dinners once a month, second Thursday of every month. We have a friend that sets up the dinners. We buy the food, prep the food on Wednesday, serve it on Thursday. But then you're sitting down actually having dinner with the clientele, and it puts it in a whole different perspective. And I've just been trying, I'm the board chair for this group. I'm trying to encourage our board to take that kind of a step, get a step closer. And... Um, and so the other thing I'm thinking of writing about in this blog is the idea of, you know, you know, what choices you make in terms of where you're going to spend your volunteer time and is some of it addressing these systemic issues. And I think I told you, mentioned that before. 
So those are some thoughts. Okay, thank you. So um, we had a couple of questions last few minutes that we have. I had some questions through uh, social media that were uh, slightly more mundane topics, I think. But one one of that I saw a number of times was um, partly to do with the uh, uncertainty and transition that we're experiencing now, which is uh, some guidance, do's and don'ts with regard to bringing volunteers on as paid employees. Uh, yeah. And I, I imagine you all have something to to, to say about that, but I, I'll, I'll ask Dana first, um, sure. simply uh, because of your um, CVA status that we, we rely on all the time. And thank you, Derek. Thanks for joining us and, and taking the time. <clears throat> we really appreciate it, and I appreciate um, your voice and your work in this conversation. Um, the girl. Yeah, thanks, Derek. I appreciate okay. it. I'll catch up with you. Thank you, sir. Um, so usually it's the opposite problem where to save money organizations want to suddenly make all of their staff volunteers and completely violate labor laws. So one, I want to acknowledge that usually it's the opposite problem. However, um, the short answer is any normal HR onboarding normal uh, procedure that you have if someone's coming from your volunteer talent pool, great. They probably have more references and some direct experience with the culture of the agency. So that probably gives them some advantage. I always tell volunteers as I'm onboarding them into assorted roles that this, that this is an entire team. It's paid, it's unpaid, it's full-time, it's part-time. And you also want to watch our volunteers joining to try to get a staff position, and that's okay, but be really clear that there's no guarantee of that result. The problem that arises is if there's a staff position and a number of your volunteers have applied for it, um, because it's it's the HR is the inverse of volunteering in that you want as many people as possible as a volunteer role to be able to do it. In HR, you're looking for typically one person at a time. What happens to all those other people that, that feel left out or disappointed? So it actually takes extra engagement. If you bring someone on from a volunteer role to a staff role, um, that leader of volunteers in that organization should take absolutely extra emotional labor and time to make sure that the volunteers who didn't get that staff role are not disengaged, are not feeling um, disappointed or angry or whatever. And if they are, then maybe they, they need to leave the role if they had different expectations. But as far as laws and HR, it's, it's the same as onboarding anybody else. It's just gonna have different uh, ripples throughout the morale of the rest of the volunteers if not everyone gets the, the job. Right, uh, Jody, did you wanna comment on that? You know, I, I think that if you're going to bring some, you know, I think it's a decision. I think it's, um, you know, I think that if you need to hire someone, you have to like look for the person who has all the qualifications. I think it's confusing to mingle like staff with volunteers. And, you know, I think everybody in an organization has their place. And, and you know, it's, it's a little bit more formal to me to just convert people um, from one role to the other. That would just be my impression. Right. Okay. Yeah, it's a normal HR process of hiring, but mm -hmm. somebody who happens to be a volunteer has just as much of a right to apply for that job mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and be considered for it um, as, uh, mm -hmm. as anyone, out, Joe Schmo, right. Jane Schmo. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, the, the final question in our last, uh, last minute or so, give uh, each of the formatting panel members a chance to uh, identify their, their favorite, if any, of the uh, many assessments and tools available for sort of skills audits to determine what staff are uh, um, 
what, what skills they've got and what are missing with regard to their own development and the organizational objectives. Brian, have you got a favorite one of those? Yeah, in, in terms of uh, tools, no, I, I don't have a particular favorite. I have one that um, we've used at BVU, which basically looks at, for, it's for succession planning and it looks at long-term succession. One is looking at the basic uh, experiences people have had, how prepared they are to step into different job functions. And the second part of it is cultural, and it's using some leadership uh, capabilities and deciding what each leader needs based on the role of that leader. And I love that tool. And have you got something you can share? Is it proprietary? Yeah, it's proprietary. Oh, well, okay. All right. Jody, what have you got? So I, have to leave. I have to leave, but I just want to jump in. Corn Ferry has by far, I will say, some of the best assessment <laughs> of tools. Of course. Right? You know, I never I should have known. it, but... Um, but, and they're affordable and we do everything from staff assessment, uh, assessment to succession planning to, I mean, part of every search process, we have Corn Ferry four-dimensional assessment, which is um, like a gold standard in terms of everything from personality to traits, drivers, motivators. So anyway, so that, that's okay. my Corn Ferry plug. I'll, I'll ask you all to send me a link that I can, <laughs> okay, that I can share with everyone. people. Arquella, what's your favorite? So I'm an assessment geek, so I, I use many different assessments. <laughs> um, so several are Profiles XT. There's a really good comprehensive that I use in hiring and, and to, to make sure you have people in the right positions. Um, Berkman, uh, Insights, um, Personalysis. Um, so those are a few that I use, but I work with multiple ones. But yeah, there's a lot of good tools out there. Excellent. Dana, have you got a favorite? Uh, I really uh, bounce around between a few different things, but I have to go with your good old-fashioned gut. So All you right. Can, okay. You can pick so. your metric tools, but that emotional intelligence and that deep gut instinct about someone and how they're going to fit in on your team uh, at any level is, is that's my that's my fallback. Excellent. Okay. That's a that's a great. Um, Beat to end on. Uh, I want to thank the the panel for. Uh, we've had three of these um, fantastic conversations. I appreciate we had a somewhat more of a challenging conversation today, um, uh, and really we only scraped the surface. Um, um, but uh, I'm thank you for your time. Thanks for everyone for uh, tuning in, and look out for the recording via podcast wherever you like to warm your ears. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Nonprofit Problem Solver Podcast. Special thanks to this week's experts. Derek Fulton, Arquella Hargrove, Dana Litwin, Jody Weiss, and Brian Broadbent. This episode was produced by Glenn Munoz at PodPro Audio. You can join future conversations live by visiting nonprofitproblemsolver.com. Connect with Kev on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. You are also invited to join a private Facebook group, Social Impact Practitioner, where every day we go deep into the practical and tactical work to accelerate your impact. Because good causes deserve better results.